Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A A podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love Love at at First first Listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Carol G. Juan Gabriel. Christina Aguilera. What do these three have in common? You mean apart from impeccable style, chart-topping canciones, and drama? Facts, yes, all of the above are correct. But most importantly, they're some of the biggest Latin icons in the world. And they're just a few of the game-changing Latin stars we're covering in Becoming an Icon Season 2. Listen to Becoming an Icon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Book of Joe podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Book of Joe podcast with me, Tom Perducci, and my buddy, Joe Madden. And and Joe, today we're going to talk about one of your favorite topics as any manager, umpires and umpiring. (laughs) I mean, managers and umpires, it's like, I don't know, cats and dogs, Wiley, Coyote, and the Roadrunner, Tom and Jerry, you know, there, there's something that uh, it's antagonistic and it's also sometimes entertaining. And I bring it up, of course, if you saw Aaron Boone on Monday night against the Chicago White Sox, Laz Diaz behind the plate. And uh, boy, that was entertaining. You don't see a lot of those demonstrative arguments anymore with umpires. But Aaron Boone went out there late in the game and just completely lost it. The irony is... It was a pitch that was well in the strike zone that Laz Diaz called strike three on Anthony Volpe. Uh, but by then, Aaron had seen enough. <laughs> you know, Laz Diaz, as you know, Joe, he's got a big strike zone. The ball off the plate, the outside of the plate, you know, whether it's a ball off the plate, he's going to call that a strike. You know, a lot of these older umpires still stick with their version of the strike zone rather than the, the radar influence strike zone. Uh, so anyway, Aaron Boone went out there and he basically mocked Laz Diaz. He literally drew a line in the dirt on the outside of the plate where he said that that's where the ball crossed the plate. Uh, and then he mocked Laz Diaz's strike three call. Um, so I, I'm saying it's entertaining, but I'm sure Laz didn't think it was entertaining. Um, so, Joe, I'm looking at uh, Aaron Boone. I realize what's going on with the Yankees here has not been fun to watch, right? They're really scuffling for offense. In the last two games for the Yankees, it was the first time in franchise history that they lost two straight games, nine inning games, by leaving 12 or more runners on base. I think the total was 28 runners left on base. So he's tired of looking at that, and we know he has a short fuse, and he lost it. Um So, Joe, I don't know about you, but I hear this phrase, you know, I'm going to stand behind my players. And I get that. But it it gets to me a little tired, too. I mean, a lot of times it's just the manager blowing off steam. So um, as someone, Joe, who's known to blow off steam yourself, (laughs) I'm not sure if you caught the Aaron Boone rant, but what's your take on a manager losing it on an umpire? Well, that's a great recap (laughs) you just went through right there, Uh you lose your mind. I mean, it gets to the point sometimes where um, things build up to the point and that that pressure relief valve just has to be an argument with an umpire. That definitely is part of it. And uh, of course, it normally does occur when you're going poorly. 
And, and then at some point, um, yeah, you just have to get out there, defend your team, defend your brood. All that stuff is a part of it. However, uh, it is, it's difficult as a manager. You are, uh, you know, you're the spokesperson for the team. Again, you are defending your brood. Uh, things aren't going well and you have to do something to try to flip this thing around. Uh, when we, regards to the umpires specifically, quite frankly, there's some guys that you feel better about their skills as, as opposed to others. It's just like any other occupation. You're going to a game um, knowing so-and-so is behind the plate. Right, right now, it's pretty much behind the plate. The bases, everything's fixable. Uh, but you, you're always concerned about that, and you're always worried about the, the close call going against you. You just don't have the same amount of confidence in, in certain people as you do in others. It's just quite, it's just being honest and it's frank. And so that, that's part of it. You could be, you could almost like set yourself up before the game begins, uh, knowing that, uh, this, there's going to be some calls you're not going to like. So the, all that, some of it's like, I guess, preset, predetermined, but it's just true. And so that's, that's a big part of it. Just how you feel about this umpire crew, this umpire specifically. Um, and it can set you up in advance. The other part, just, uh, uh, emotion, passion, that the game is set up right now primarily that um, uh, managers have very few avenues to really get upset about. Um, yeah, balls and strikes still won. Check swings to me was the one that would set me off. I think as much as anything was the check swing. Uh, I, I don't even know how many times I got ejected over that. But, you know, the, the, the plays on the bases are no longer part of that, the emotion anymore. Uh, although I did see the play the other day in San Diego, where I thought Gary Sanchez made a great play at the plate, but then the call was reversed because they said he was blocking the plate on a safety squeeze. Great play, both sides. Great play offensively uh, by the uh, by the Dodgers. Great play defensively by the Padres. I thought Sanchez played it perfectly, but of course, with the manufactured rule, he's out. And uh, that that was a little bit upsetting to me just to watch it, but no emotion. I mean, uh, you know, Bomell came out, but what are you going to argue about? They didn't even make the. They didn't reverse the call. Somebody in New York did. So the way the game's set up right now, a lot of the emotion is being tapped out of it um, because you just there's nothing to argue about anymore. So final point, if you as a manager need to uh, be loud, um, balls and strikes, check swings are about the last two vestiges where you are able to do something like that and get out there and make a point. Yeah, that's a great point about, you know, there's not many times now that manager can go out there or should go out there and argue because of replay of the bases. It basically takes the three bases Mm -hmm. out of the equation when it comes to arguments. That's why the rate at which Aaron Boone is getting thrown out of games is shocking. Aaron Boone is getting thrown out once every 25.6 games in his major league career as a manager. And this is without arguments, essentially, on the basis at all. And he's getting thrown out of games more frequently than any manager in the last 60 years. It's actually the third highest rate all time. (laughs) Only ones higher than him were Frankie Frisch and Paul Richards, whose nickname was Old Rent and Rave. I mean, it's stunning to me, Joe, that in today's game, as you mentioned, basically you're just going to argue with the home plate umpire that he's getting thrown out like this. And I again, I get the whole idea about defending your players. But when it happens this often, I think it loses its impact. It becomes more about Aaron Boone than defending the players. So I, I don't know. Listen, he's going to get suspended and should be for this, you know, again, mocking the umpire. It's one thing to argue, but I think he went a little far as far as pushing the envelope of suspension or not. Uh, And I wonder if his recidivist history would come into play at all as well. I I know David Bell had a situation either a year or two ago where MLB brought him in and said, listen, just tone it down a little bit. This is getting out of hand. You you can't just lose it like this on ball strike calls all the time. Um, We all understand frustration, but I think there's a point where it becomes too much. And I think Aaron Boone is at the point where it's too much. Well, first of all, I'm going to defend Aaron in the sense that this is a wonderful young man. I Absolutely. mean, I, I got to know him a lot when he's a broadcaster and uh, come into my office. We had a great conversation. He's a great listener. He looks you right in the eyeballs. I know his daddy. I know, I know Bob really well. Uh, I know Brett. I mean, but this is a really first-rate, solid, very smart guy. So first of all, I know that. Second of all, he works for the Yankees, and the Yankees are doing well. So when you're you know, in that dugout at Yankee Stadium on a nightly basis and your team's not doing well and you spent all this money – and you're always part of it is you are you are the spokesperson for the organization. You just are uh, twice a day minimal before the game, after the game. And then, of course, any other like um, uh, interviews that you may have to 
participate in uh, as you get to the ballpark, that there's a lot of conversation constantly. And we're always having to play defense. And he's playing defense right now. There's no offense. There's no – you can't go out there and, and blow your own horn about anything. It's all you're playing defense. And when you're constantly playing defense, it can wear you down. I thought that came to my head and my mind. And when I was with the Devil Rays the first two years, I was always playing defense in the postgame conversations. And then, you know, people, uh, they start questioning your abilities and, you know, all this stuff. And a lot of it's just based on personnel or the lack of it. It's just not – it's not the fact that you – are lacking anything as a manager. Sometimes the personnel is just not playing well or they're just not good enough. But nevertheless, you still have to defend, 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 and that, that'll that wear you down. Uh, what he needs is a, a nice little run here. They do, obviously, that's an understatement. But they get on some kind of a run here. He can start playing offense again. Uh, I mean, uh, offensively, uh, pre- and post-game, where he can talk favorably about his group and be something to crow about. And, yeah, I told you we talked about this before. That's what he needs. Um and until they win, it's not going to go away because it's hard. It's hard as a manager to constantly defend everything going on within your organization. Yeah, that's a great point, especially in New York, as you know, where everything is amplified. Mm-hmm. So playing defense can definitely wear on, you down, on anybody managing in New York in a tough situation. And that's where mm-hmm. they're at. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are now uh, zero in terms of run differential. They're five and a half games out of the wild card chasing Toronto with a couple of teams in front of them. And the offense just has been stuck in neutral for two, two and a half months here. So a lot going on, certainly for Aaron Boone. And um, I'm sure probably made him feel better to get it out. And in his defense, Las Diaz had a tough night. But I say that again, knowing that this is who he is as an umpire. He's going to call. The Yankees had Las Diaz opening day with Garrett Cole on the mound. And Las Diaz missed 15 pitches. You know, he's just going to call that pitch off the plate a strike. The Yankees won that game against the Giants. But they've seen it. They know the reputation. And you know, as a manager, Joe, you get a scouting report on on umpires. And you know what you can get, what you can't get. And in that game in Chicago, there were 13 calls that went against the Yankees. There were three that went against the White Sox. So I get where Aaron Boone is coming from. Uh, it's just unusual for me to see a manager lose it as often as he does. I mean, right. think about it. He's getting thrown out of games more at a higher rate than people like Earl Weaver, Billy Martin, Leo DeRocher. So just, it's it's in today's game, it's odd to see, but understandable, I guess, in mm-hmm. terms of what you just pointed out, the, the heat coming down on him and the frustration of seeing his team leave guys on base. Well, part of it that you're talking about there, and apparently the White Sox did a better job of uh, – pitching to the heat map or their pitcher just had better command because these guys know everybody knows before the game begins where an umpire is big and umpire is kind of like two different umpires based on like um, right-handed hitter, uh, right, right-handed pitcher, right-handed hitter, right-handed pitcher, left-handed hitter and vice versa. So it's almost like four different strike zones that you have to understand. And when a catcher really knows that and a pitcher has the command to pitch to that, it could definitely work in your favor. That's something that this goes back uh, you know, with the Rays, I think we started with the Rays years ago. It was uh, in a rudimentary phase where we had these like, like amoebas, look like a little amoeba on a on a piece of paper, and it wasn't highly specific, but it gave you a pretty good idea where the guy was big and where he was tight. So if you have like a low, a low ball pitcher pitching that day, and this guy is not giving anything down there, eh, you go into the game just being concerned about it. And if, if conversely, if a High ball umpire, you got a guy with nice little ride and he's pitching at the top of the zone a lot. You get, you're going to feel good about this. And there's guys that are tied in, guys that are tied out. But again, when you watch a game, understand right on right, right on left is going to be two different strike zones. And then left on left and left on right, two different strike zones. So you got to, you got to check all that out because all these umpires, uh, they're, they're human. They're, they're all taught the same thing. However, they see things differently. And last point, I mean, it's really what catching's gotten to the point we've talked about this recently where catchers are pulling pitches. It's not framing, they're pulling them. And I, I watch it. It's it's flagrant. I can't believe how flagrant it is sometimes when a guy will absolutely, they, you know, with that elephant trunk, they start with the, the glove below and they pull it right up to the to the zone. I, I'm still waiting. And I would defend any umpire that would tell a catcher, listen, either you stop that or I'm not calling a strike. I mean, really, it's 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 a tough way uh, to umpire. And I watch it. And I when I watch it, I see umpires really, I think, making good calls in spite of the fact that the guy's moving his glove all over the place, I'd say, good job, umpire, Mr. Umpire. That's really good stuff. So, again, um, from a perspective of an umpire, an umpire is a group, I would have a meeting and say, listen, guys, stop pulling pitches or you're not getting anything. 
Yeah, I'm surprised they let some of these catchers get away with how much they're pulling pitchers because it, it's not a good look for the umpire. At all. I mentioned Frankie Fritsch as a guy who's thrown out just about as much, if not more, than than Aaron Boone. Uh, a couple of great stories about him. He got thrown out of one game when he didn't like the field conditions, thought it was too wet to continue playing. He walked out to argue with the umpires holding an umbrella. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> I like that. And then there was another time he got thrown out. He didn't like the call. He went out and argued. And when he got his explanation, he pretended to faint on the field. <laughs> See That's ya. so good. I didn't know that. A couple other ones for you. Earl Weaver, I mentioned. Uh-huh. It's amazing. He was a great arguer of umpires. Now, that was entertainment, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. There was he was thrown out of both ends of a doubleheader three times in his career. <laughs> and my favorite is an umpire once tried to explain uh, a rule book interpretation to Earl Weaver, and the umpire offered to show Earl the rule book. And Earl said, that doesn't do me any good. And the umpire said, why? He said, because I don't read Braille. <laughs> <laughs> It's listen, that's the stuff that we're missing. I mean, you know, uh, you can talk about analytics, you can talk about everything else, but we're, we're, we're subtracting so much emotion from the game. We are, and we're becoming everybody's uh, pretty much the same uh, cat anymore. Every organization wants to be the same as the socialistic version of baseball. So maybe they, what Booney did is actually necessary or needed just to break it up a little bit. Um, because, like you're describing, all those guys, I mean, very entertaining. Billy Martin, very entertaining. Uh, Whitey, very entertaining. I mean, all these dudes are very entertaining. And I got to know several of them. And conversationally, they were great. Uh, Jimmy Leland. I love Jimmy Leland. How could you not love Jimmy? How, how could you not love Don Zimmer? Um, that's part of it that uh, the personality is being subtracted from the game, kind of. Um, it's not being encouraged. It's not wanted anymore. And these guys were just loaded with that stuff. And it was entertaining to the fans, but also to the, to your team. And even the other team, you get, you get, you get some pretty good laughs in the dugout and you get some good laughs for coming from the other dugout. All of it is what makes our game so interesting and fun. Yeah. You mentioned Jimmy Leland. He used to wear spikes when he managed. Yes. And I, I once asked him why he might've been pulling my leg, maybe not, but he said, it's when I go out there and argue with the umpires. <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> lose my feet. <laughs> I believe it. And one quick story for you, Joe, entertaining umpire. How about, Lou Pinella, Ugh. he was great. I was at a game at the old Municipal Stadium in Cleveland, and Lou loved to do things with his hat, throw it, kick it, whatever. It was kind of part of his act. Uh, and he went out there this day, a hot Sunday afternoon in Cleveland, argued the call, went into his rant, fired his hat into the ground, um, continued the argument, then turned around, and he went to go kick his hat, and it wasn't there. The ball boy had picked it up. <laughs> After the, the argument was oh done, Lou admonished the ball boy. He said, don't ever touch my prop. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, these guys are so and, – and that's the thing. I mean, I've, I've, I've worked with people that have worked with Lou more closely, and I, Lou and I are friends, and I really enjoy the guy, but – I'm telling you, man, if you ever heard the whole stories behind the different situations that Lou, Lou might, uh, might have been one of the funniest ever. Um, it's hysterical stuff. I'm still waiting for that book to come out. The movie about Lou Pinnell would be absolutely entertaining. He, he is great, great baseball mind, great dude. But stuff that he did was absolutely hysterical and hilarious. Well, Joe, you're pretty entertaining yourself. So we're going to take a quick break. and we get back, I want to hear Joe Madden's best stories about arguing with umpires. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. People don't always realize just how much their negative thoughts and experiences stick with them and weigh them down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mom does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapist anytime. 
Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Book of Joe today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash Book of Joe. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Horton's new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Do you love Selena? Like, really love? Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stand the Queen of Tejano. And Stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Joe, you know, we have numbers for everything, including ejections. So uh, I-, I was looking up your career tally for your career ejections. You're actually 16th on the all-time list. You're actually tied with Bob Melvin. So the next time he gets tossed, he's going to pass you. Uh, 59 ejections in your 19 years. Um, you're actually ahead of the curmudgeon Dick Williams, you're ahead of Sparky Anderson, 56, and you're ahead of Gene Mock at 54. So uh, you've done pretty good to get in the top 16 all-time for ejections. Um, I, I, listen, I don't know if this was your most entertaining one, but uh, you must have played hoops as a kid because there was that one with Joe West where you had a great spin room spin move trying to get out of his grasp. I don't even know what the argument was. Maybe it was one of those check swing calls, but you're with the Cubs and uh, man, you had some good footwork, Joe. Do you remember that one? I do. I mean, and that's really a football thing. I remember like seeing high school football films of running downfield and I was able to do that spin thing to get out of a, a tackle. But yeah, that was because they were throwing at Javi Baez um, in that game. And the, at that time, the Pirates had a really strong reputation of throwing at people and not only inside, uh, but up and inside. And I just had enough. So I'm yelling at their dugout, and I'm yelling at their dugout, and finally that was enough. So I always had every intention of going into their dugout. I, mean, I was trying to get over there, and I'm getting out of the dugout, and here comes Joe West, like an absolute left tackle, great footwork, because Joe's a football player. He kept, kept pushing me in front of me, and then KB came up behind and grabbed me from behind. And you see the pictures of KB. It looks like he's actually smiling or laughing. But I was really upset because, because of the reputation they had had and the fact that I thought that that was happening that day. So I was literally actually trying to get to the pirate dugout, probably gotten the crap beat out of me more than likely. <laughs> but I mean, it was, it was one of those things you just, you just had to do in the moment. It was the right thing to do. Yes. Joe West was outstanding. Uh, footwork was great, but KB had a, had a really good hold on me and it kind of, I think it eventually settled me down. <laughs> now, I don't know if you remember this one. You probably do. Uh, you were with Tampa Bay at the time. It was against the White Sox. Ozzie Gain was the other manager. And, and Ozzie actually got a call overturned at first base. I think it was Gavin Floyd was covering first base. And there was some question whether he had control of the ball 
on the out at first base. Um, and Ozzy came out and argued, actually won an argument. So the play was overturned in his favor. And the notes from the game said that you were out there so long arguing that actually all four umpires ejected you. <laughs> you, you, you completed the cycle of ejections in one play. Was that that was in uh, was that in Chicago? I'm not sure exactly where it was. Yeah, you know, you know what that was? That was the play up the middle, and it was a throw to first base, and he was called out. And then the second base umpire overturned it from behind second base. That's what happened. So once the calls made, uh, argument, I think this is how it happened. And then be, uh, before it was all over, the second base, who's like over 90 feet away, changes the call. And I was like, I was totally amazed by that. And I could not let, I could not walk away from that at all. So there was always, uh, you know, Przinsky stuff with the plate. Uh, the ball in the dirt with Josh Paul. I wasn't the manager at that time, but also Przinsky going between second and third. Again, Doug Ennings' call gets overturned. I think this was um, Dana DeMuth and Joe West are combining this somehow, I think. But anyway, the call was overturned by the umpire behind second base on a play at first base. So that one I could not, I could not deal with at all. That was ridiculous where the guy's like three feet away from the call. He's wrong. And the guy that's over 100 feet away is right. So that's like pretty certain that that's what had happened on that play. Let me ask you this, because I think we've heard about this, and I know for a fact Lou Pinella had done this. Are there times where you would go out, out there to fire up your team? Like thinking you're going to inspire or wake up, whatever you want to use, the terminology, um, but actually a calculated, not spur of the moment reaction to a call, but saying, you know what, I'm going to go out there. Our team needs something here. We need a spark. Yeah. Started in double A. I was managing in Midland, and I think the umpire's name was Joe Burleson. Before the game, I said, listen, I need to get kicked out of this game. He says, ah. I said, no, listen, if I come out there, I'll try, not, I'll try to use the right language. I'm not going to get personal. But the moment I come out there and for the very first close call, you need to throw me out. And sure enough, there's a close play at third base. I jumped over somebody to get right in front of Joe. I started yelling at him, boom, he throws me out of the game. I can't tell you if we won or, or lost, but that's the first time I think I intentionally did. The other time was in Colorado. Uh, in the major leagues, we were playing in Colorado, Devil Rays, and my favorite, Teddy Barrett's umpiring behind. And Ted is a minister. Ted is a minister. Ted actually offered to marry my daughter, Sarah, when Sarah was getting married a couple of years ago, several years ago, actually. So uh, I'm there and I'm out in the mound arguing, and Ted starts walking out to the mound. I start walking towards Ted. I said, Ted, you got to throw me out of this game. He says, Joe, I can't do that. I says, Ted, you got to throw me out of this game. You absolutely have to. So he looked at me again. He's, he's got this really great. Um, uh, he kind of pacifies you and he's got this great uh, puppy dog kind of a look about him so eventually he he tossed me out of the game and I got what I had wanted to get done I I said I got to yell at you a little bit I did went back to the mound changed the pitchers after the game I'm on the team bus and who comes walking out but Ted so I get off the bus walk up to him give him a big old hug I said man I'm sorry but thanks for what you did there he went on his way and so did I hey he's a big teddy bear great guy I love teddy Love Teddy. How about when uh, usually there's a a small fine, if you will, attached to these ejections, especially if you you really demonstrative. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you actually write the check, or does the team yeah. help you out? No, I mean it stopped. I mean in the beginning, uh, I think with the race they helped me a little bit, but eventually I didn't get any help on my uh, fines. I was paying all my own fines, and they kept getting a little bit bigger. Uh, but you know, I wasn't going to cry about it. I mean, I was doing what I was supposed to do. I thought it was part of the job. Uh, but the last couple of years. Um, in uh, Chicago and, and uh, the, with the Angels, I didn't get I didn't get reimbursed for my my uh, my fines for doing what I did. Uh, but you you, do, you don't stop. You just got to keep doing what you do. Uh, it's the right. It is really the right thing to do. Honestly, it is. It has. It makes a difference when you walk in the clubhouse after the game. If you defended somebody, justifiably defended somebody. Sometimes it can't be theatrical, but it's the right thing to do. And your players do appreciate it. Your players do appreciate it. Just think about you as a kid. I remember when my dad stuck up for me one time when uh, I think it was Mr. Lobitz was driving by and he yells at me as I'm putting my car in the garage. My dad came storming out of the garage. I started yelling at a really good friend, Mr. Lobitz, about getting on me as a kid and made me feel good that my, my dad defended me. So, um, you know, there's there's that to it. And if we all think about it and understand it, if you slow it down a little bit, yeah, it matters when somebody um, very, very important to you in your life uh, takes your side in a dispute. Uh, I don't even know who's right or wrong all the time. That's not even the point, but he takes your side. 
And then maybe there's a conversation afterwards to like, hey, listen, you were in the wrong right there. But I, I did what I did only because I had to defend you. But understand, uh, use better judgment next time. And that's that's cool. So, uh, but yes, I, I defend their manager's right to do that because, it, quite frankly, it makes a difference among the players. And Joe, give give everybody an idea of language in these arguments, and you don't have to give us uh, <laughs> verbatim yeah. uh, quotations yeah. here, but there there is a line there, obviously, with umpires, what you can yeah. say and not say, and and still remain in the game. Um, and we know if you get a little too personal, you're going to get wrong. You know that. Um, but is it different among certain umpires that you can get away with more or less in terms of the language that you use? Well, you know, quite frankly, you argue differently with different umpires, too, just based on whether uh, the competency level and how you feel about them personally. It's just the truth. I mean, there's certain guys I won't argue with. I'll stand in a dugout and I'll say to my pitching coach or my bench coach, I, I'm not going to argue with so-and-so tonight. I can't do it. Uh, the guy's a good dude. He, are, you know, he works his butt off. Sometimes he's not right, but I can't. And then you might get more, a more arrogant umpire that even the smallest thing, you're out there, you're running out there to to argue something just based on the personality uh, possibly conflict with that. So that does make a difference. Uh, quite frankly, it does. Language, Wolf, uh, when I first started out in the minor leagues, uh, my first dejection was in Idaho Falls, Idaho, on a play at the plate, Norm Larker got thrown out. And I I always wondered before that, how do I argue? How do you argue? When, or when do you argue? And I find out real quickly, you just do it. Um, so that is part of it. But if I really was too demonstrative and, and said things that really, mm, I get done, I go into the clubhouse, and say, wow, that was stupid. So the next day, uh, we take the lineup card out. I would rush out before the other manager would come out. I'd get to the umpires and say, listen, uh, I'm really sorry for the language I used yesterday. I need to be better than that. However, if I need to come back out again today, I'm going to. But just want you to know, I apologize for the way I stated myself yesterday. And I would do that. And I, I would, if anything, it made me feel better. So all these things are, are part of the game on a daily basis. Uh, it's, it's human nature. It's, hum, it's humanity. It's people. And uh, there's likes and dislikes. There's, um, there's people that are more uh, confrontational, others that are not. And you react accordingly. It's, it's just true. Young umpire, you might get into it a little bit more than an old established umpire that's been around that you know. Uh, it's just the way it is. Uh, you, you actually prefer <laughs> if something comes up that you don't really know the umpire that well yet. And I got to the point where I stopped taking the lineup card out because they didn't want to get to know some of these guys that were coming <laughs> into the league because then it was easier to go argue with them as opposed to like the Jerry Lanes of the world. I can't argue with Jerry. I could not argue with Jerry. Uh, he just couldn't do it. I just, I just liked him that much. He's that good of a dude. Like I said, Teddy is another one of those guys and the list goes on. Uh, but there's then I could, and listen, I like Joe West a lot. I thought Joe West is one of the better umpires of ever, top three ever. But Joe and I would just argue because we had to argue about things. And uh, but I still believe he's one of the best I've ever been around. And I always felt good when he umpired the game. There might be separate things that occurred that Joe would do that others would not. However, I thought you know balls and strikes when he was in his prime and and before um, instant replay and stuff, he was good on the bases too. And I just and again, he's good for the game. He was uh, nobody came the scene, but everybody enjoyed watching Joe West in the game. Yeah, and that was sort of the beauty of the argument uh, with Aaron Boone in Chicago was that uh, Laz Diaz, a little more old school. Obviously, he's a veteran umpire, been around. Yeah. He gave it back to Aaron Boone. Yeah. That was kind of cool to see. I had, it's been years, I think, since I've seen actually the the umpire and the manager go at it back and forth. So, um, by the way, real quick, Joe, on the Yankees, um, give me your take on them. I, I think they're in a lot of trouble. Hmm. My, my rule of thumb generally is if you're any more than – uh, one game per week left in the season out of a playoff spot, you're in trouble. One Picking up one game a week is probably like the max you can think. And the Yankees are getting to that point, being five and a half out here with seven left. So I just think this team bet on what they called the back of the baseball card, that guys would come around and, and reach their levels. But I, you know whether it's Rizzo, who's on the IL now, with post-concussion syndrome, DJ LeMahieu, who's not hitting velocity, Giancarlo Stanton, who just cannot get on any kind of his usual streaks. I just see this going in one direction. I don't know how it's going to get much better over these last seven weeks for the Yankees to make up that much ground on a really good Toronto team. I would try to map it out exactly what you're talking about. We have to make up one game a week. When we did that with the Rays, we came back from a, a, a ton of games on September 1. 
I was trying to figure out how many games a week do we have to make up. And that, like you talked, we talked about before, that was just the, the, the demise of the Red Sox combined with us um, playing pretty well. But yeah, I think that's a great um, uh, form of uh, selling it to your team. Listen, we got to make up one game a week. I, I think it's important to give your, your group um, a mental uh, key or message or a schematic. How are we going to do this? And when you do that, it, it doesn't make it more, it makes it more possible in their mind's eye. And I, and I like that. The other thing is to consider, though, even if it's one game a week, how many teams are in front of you? Or how many teams are involved in this? When there's multiple teams, man, it is so hard to uh, leapfrog a bunch of teams as opposed to maybe just one, which is what we had to do with the Rays. So all, all this stuff is a part of it. Uh, but I do agree with that. I like that formulation. Uh, but again, the Yankees, um, no, it, it's it's not going to, I mean, we got Radon goes down. How do you? Radon uh, goes down again, and he's going to be down. And they, he wanted to pitch, but they're saying no. And who knows how? If it's actually a hamstring, there's no telling how long that's going to take. Cortez came back; he looked great, obviously. But nevertheless, I mean, their team on the field, their offensive part—that's just not going to. You're not just not going to flip a switch there. They're playing, you know, with a lot of guys that uh, they did not expect to be playing with right now. And you know, obviously, you know, Judge has to get out there as often as he can. But I still think they're doing the right thing, bringing him back slowly. Because, again, if they just try to force him back in there after having been out for a long time, they could have set him up for another, a, a different kind of an injury. So I like that part of it. But, yeah, it's, uh, it's they have to almost be perfect. You have to be almost like, uh, what's it, there 50 games up? They have to be like 35 and 15 good, something like that. At least 30 and uh, 20 good in order to get there. Uh, but I think it's going to take something extraordinary like a 35 and 15 record over a 50-game span in order to really get back where you want to be. One of the things we love to talk about here on the podcast, and, and Joe has been a master at it at the major league level, is culture. And I, I know it gets that word gets thrown around a lot. It's a big buzzword, not just in baseball, but in, in the business world as well. And the Chicago White Sox offer us a, a really good Petri dish case on, on culture and what happens when it doesn't work. We'll dive into that right after this. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Do you love Selena? Like, really love? Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stand the Queen of Tejano. And Stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and Challenge All-Star. And speaking of All-Stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the Challenge Gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Nikki Glazer Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glazer Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glazer Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glazer Podcast to start listening. Okay, Joe, I talked about culture and the White Sox, and it was really brought to the forefront, a story on ESPN. Uh, and a guy you had with the Angels, Keenan Middleton, pointed out the fact that he said the White Sox have a lousy culture, the lack of leadership, guys sleeping in the bullpen, uh, people not showing up for early pitchers fielding practice and getting a pass, guys not showing up for meetings, getting a pass. Um, and the White Sox pushed back on this. Um, but clearly something is amiss with a team that a lot of people thought had underachieved. I, I never liked the White Sox. I, I didn't pick them to win. I liked Minnesota uh, and Cleveland better than Chicago, but that's beside the point. When you hear things like this, Joe, when a, when a player airs, let's call it dirty laundry, uh, and calls out, and to me, most directly the manager, but especially the organization that things aren't right in the clubhouse, um, how did you respond to that? What did you think of that? Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, quite frankly, he had no business doing that, I don't think. I mean, this is a guy that was on a minor league contract coming into the season. And really, I mean, he's, 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 he's got a great arm. He's been somewhat successful. And I don't even know that that should be the prerequisite. However, um, coming from him uh, and to uh, create or stir up the hornet's nest as much as it has, I didn't like that at all, quite frankly. Um, so I'll just start with that. Um, yeah, and let me point out, y'all, I'll just interrupt real briefly, that Rick Hahn, the general manager, pointed out that a week before Middleton was traded to the Yankees, um, they had a conversation. Mm-hmm. And according to Hahn, Middleton actually apologized for his own professional, unprofessional behavior and had been called out by the manager, Pedro Grifol. Yeah. So they were blown away that these accusations were coming from a guy who, according to Rick Hahn, had apologized for his own unprofessional behavior. Yeah, I mean, when we start listening to everybody, and that's just the, the nature of the our world right now, uh, this wasn't necessarily a social media situation, but everybody has a voice right now, and uh, it, it's a non-vetted voice most of the time. And somebody puts this out there, then all of a sudden, everybody's got to start answering questions for this. Of course, they have not been good. Of course, there's probably something wrong. Of course, all all of that has to be true, no question. But uh, to be to be exposed in the way that it was by a relief pitcher going from one team to the other, because my concern would be like. Uh, when he goes to the next team, what's that conversation going to be like? Listen, I like the kid. He and I had great conversations. We used to sit and talk all the time. He's very bright. He's a bright kid. So uh, that part, um, a little bit surprised with all of that. And I would hope and wish that that, that gets settled somehow. And that everybody learns from this because it's not necessary. It's not necessary. If you have that kind of an issue, you go talk to a Rick Hahn or the skipper or whomever, but to go somewhere else and hear it like that, I, I didn't like that. Number one, number two, culture. Yeah, I mean, I, I've said it. We talked about it the other day. I just haven't liked the way they played. Even my, you know, when I was still with the Angels there, there was a, a, a way that they didn't play. I mean, we, we opened up against them in um, Anaheim a couple years ago when uh, Show had that great game. He beat CeCe to bomb to right central. Ball went off Robert head, Robert's head in the, on a fly ball coming in. There was just a, an unbridled way that they played, and I didn't see like a lot of structure about uh, the game the, and, and how they played the game. A lot of great athletes, uh, but culturally, there just didn't seem to be a method of operation. Best way to describe it. You watch Baltimore right now. Uh, Rushman, Rushman, I saw him hit a but kind of a base hit to right center, not like to the wall, whatever, but this guy made it into a double. They run hard every time from home to second base. That's that's part of culture right there. That's culture. Uh, just the way they go about their business. You watch Hyder in the dugout. Um, never uh, varies in his ex- facial expression, good or bad, which I think is the right way to, to do things. And that really bleeds down to the rest of the group culture. Um, just, and again, just the way they play the game and um, they're, they're never out of it. They, they just played in a hard manner. And again, um, what's the conversation like in the clubhouse? Uh, what is, what are their meetings? Uh, how are their meetings conducted and how often do they have meetings and who's running the meetings and what's being said in the meetings, all those things, matter but it really comes down to 
uh, how the, the players perceive the manager and the tone that he sets and what the expectations are and then how you um, uh, enforce, not enforce is not a really good word, that you monitor these expectations to make sure that they're being adhered to on a daily basis and that you have tough conversations to keep drawing it back, drawing it back, drawing it back. This is what we talked about in spring training. We can't get far away from this. This is what we said we were going to be. This is how we worked. So we did in the camp. And this is these are these are our personal expectations exclusive of everybody else, which should be the expectations that are necessary, not anybody else's. So culture is big, and that's the thing about the White Sox. I just didn't like I didn't like the game that they played. I thought it was too loose. And I didn't see anything specifically. They had but they have great talent. And I'm sure they're going to be really good in the very near future. But that's what I've seen with them. So yes, culture matters. Uh, people that make fun of it, we mock what we don't understand. So if you've never really had to uh, build a culture within a business or in a baseball team, in a clubhouse, in your family, if you've never really done that before, it's foreign to you. And you will. we always mock what we don't understand. Joe, let me ask you about this as it relates to the manager's responsibility with culture. And this was brought up by Rick Hahn. And again, Pedro Grafal, rookie manager. Mm-hmm. It's his first major league job, first year, obviously, with the White Sox. Mm-hmm. And Rick Hahn said, sort of in defense of Pedro, it does take a manager a certain amount of time to implement the culture that they want. And he said, I I know that Pedro wanted to sit back and wait to see what culture developed in the clubhouse before he put his fingerprints on it. That sounds a little passive to me, um, but you've been there. You know it. Um, you've taken over teams that had, let's face it, uh, not just a, a losing history, but kind of a losing way about them. Uh, give me a sense of your take on when you take over a team, you're new with a team. Does it take a long time to implement culture? Um, yes and no. I mean, you have to walk in the door that first day specifically outlining whatever culture you want to have there, I believe. Um, so it, it starts with that. In your team meeting, in your first address with the group, you outline specifically what is important here and what we're going to try to accomplish and who we're going to be and how we're going to be that. And what are we going to emphasize? For me, it was like simple. We're going to run hard to first base, respect 90 feet. And I thought if you did that, then that's going to permeate the position players throughout. And if they did that, they're going to be pay more attention on defense. They're going to work better at bats. They're going to do everything to a higher level just by respecting that 90 feet. And weirdly, I mean, I mean, I don't know if people would agree with this or not, but the pitchers, all I wanted pitchers to do was work on their defense, holding runners, you move the first base, make sure that you become proficient at defense and do that more consistently and not just um, in spring training and stop working on your defense. So I, th- those are the two wants I had. And I thought from that, everything else would take shape or form from that. So I would do that. I would, I would um, create an outline. And uh, be very specific about it. Nine equals eight with the Rays in 2008. Nine players playing nine innings hard. Uh, eventually is going to lead to us to be one of the nine teams, or eight teams in the playoffs. So nine would equals eight. And then I went into nine more wins offensively, nine more wins defensively, nine more wins um, from the pitching staff. These, you know, you give them specific thoughts to think about. And we, if, we, if you have that on a daily basis, either to think about or be brought, brought back to that for me, or some of the coaching staff, or some visuals I would post in the locker room. This is who we are, and this is what we're trying to be. And then when it comes to streamlining, yeah, once you get this out there, then it's really about uh, my lead bull meeting as an example where I would try to get the most influential players within the team in a room, and we would talk about our policies. I, I refrain from using the word rules, too hard, too hard, fast, too set in stone. I want policy that's a little bit more malleable, but nevertheless a guideline. And we'd sit there with who I perceived to be the most influential guys on the team, and we would go through that. And then by the time we got to like maybe eight or nine guys, and then when they were done, I wanted them to carry the message to the players. I didn't want to be dictating to the players, the rest of the group, exactly what we're going to do on a daily basis. That's your clubhouse. You come here every day. This is I want you guys to run this. It only comes back to me if it gets dire, if you can't agree on things, if it gets out of hand, if we're getting away from this established culture, <clears throat> then it's time for me to interfere again. So yeah, this, I'm trying to be specific. This is what I would do. I, I mindfully um, did it when I walked in the door in, in Tampa Bay, only based on so many years of running the minor leagues with the angels. The things I'm talking about now were the absolutes that I had uh, held and learned 
uh, from other guys that I brought and I tried to outline and define for myself in the angel minor league system. And then eventually I get to the raise. I walk in the door. I was able to go on and on and on about these different things because I believe this. And I, and I thought this is the right way to do things. Getting to the Cubs somewhat easier because uh, worked really well with the Rays. I gained even more confidence. And then with the Angels, same thing. Uh, you know, COVID hurt a little bit. We got off to a great start uh, my last year there, then eventually had a little bit of a rough streak. But all this stuff works. But you have to be specific. You have to stay with it. Uh, every day matters. Every day counts. And the accountability word or factor is huge. You know, Joe, when you were going through that and you're basically talking about empowering your players, right, and, and stepping in when you need to step in, mm-hmm. it reminded me of that great episode we had with Max Weinberg, mm-hmm. drummer for the East Street Band, who talked about Bruce Springsteen and the way it was set up. He called it a benevolent dictatorship. Right. That's right. <laughs> I, I love that description. That's true. I mean, and that is true because you have to, you are in charge. The, the buck does stop there. It's your Harry Truman. Absolutely, you are. But at the same time, for me, the less involved I needed to be, the better this thing would run. So talk to Billy Bavese about this, and he agreed with me. When you walk in the door on a daily basis, I walk in, whatever, 2.30, 3 o'clock in the afternoon for a 7 o'clock game. If you walk in the door and feel like you have nothing to do, you've done a great job. If you walk in the door and you feel like, I got to do this, I got to do that, I got to do this, you have not done a great job of setting this up because then you have not empowered the proper people. When you empower uh, the group, um, when things go poorly, that's when it really pays off. When things go well, everybody's magnificent. There's no concerns. Everything flows. But when things go poorly, if you have not empowered the group and it's been all about you and your and your precepts and what you think is the right thing or wrong thing to do, these folks scatter, man. They, 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 they run. They jump off the ship very quickly because they have not been given any responsibility in this whole thing. And that's where uh, I, this is my, uh, I've noticed this. I, I don't think this is prevalent anymore. I think there's too much control coming from top. And with, with that, there's not as enough empowerment and trusting. You've hired people for a reason. Let them do their jobs. So that's a big part of it also for me. Uh, I think tried and true works. I really do. I, I, I'm not a controlling guy at all when it comes to leadership. I know how to set it up. Uh, once it's set up, I want to, my, my job is to, like I said, on a daily basis, make sure that it's working properly. And if anybody needs my assistance, I step in. And of course, I'll talk if they come to me, same thing. But to constantly interfere, I don't agree with it. Joe, I want to bring this full circle and go back to what we were talking about, the relationship between managers and umpires. Mm -hmm. And there may come a day, and maybe fairly soon, where what we saw in Chicago with Boone and Las Diaz going at it uh, doesn't happen anymore. Mm -hmm. If you're talking about a fully automated strike zone, I mean, what's there left to argue, right? We talked about how that's really gone away from the bases because we have replay to settle quote-unquote disputes. Now, listen, I I don't think baseball is going to immediately institute a fully automatic strike zone. I think they like the trials in the minor leagues where there is a challenge system. It can only be done by the catcher, the batter, or the pitcher, and you get three challenges per game on a pitch. In other words, it could be a 3-2 pitch off the plate or a a pitch like DJ LeMahieu took for called strike three with a runner on third base less than two outs. Laz Diaz called that a strike. The batter has, in the minor leagues right now, the opportunity to say, I challenge that. And we go to the Hawkeye system, just like you see in tennis. It's up on the Jumbotron. Everybody finds out in real time whether that was actually in the strike zone or not. And the call is either upheld or we we play on. And... um, you know, you reverse the call. So I'm just wondering what you think, Joe, whether that it's sort of that hybrid system there or the replay challenge system is, is a good way to go. Or you talked about the human element of the game. Are we going a little bit too far down the road where we're taking the human element out of the game? And, you know, we, we have to get every call right or close to it. And, and we there's a, there's a cost to doing that. Yeah, I mean, the more technology, the less passion we are uh, emotion. Uh, we have as a human being, and we're talking in an athletic sense right here. Uh, the more technology we permit into the game, the less reason there is to be emotional or passionate about something because we'll just wait and find out uh, what the video replay indicates or with the, uh, in this situation, the, the box. And uh, we'll, we'll get that, we'll get that little ping, yes or no. And, and eventually we're going to become moot. I mean, we're, we're just trying to uh, make the situation where the human being becomes a moot point. 
uh, we're going to, with artificial intelligence taking over, basically talking about that kind of right here, where again, a machine is going to tell us right or wrong. And we're going to say, we, we trust it so much that it's accurate that, that, that we, we're going to step aside and just permit this to occur. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. Um, again, uh, there's nothing, again, umpires, yeah, I, I, I don't want a bad call. I don't want a wrong call. But if there is a wrong call, the ability to argue that wrong call still makes our game somewhat more human and entertaining. And I'm okay with that. I am. I, uh, I've talked to a couple umpires about the potential for the automated strike zone to come in. And, and part of that that's not spoken about enough, I think, is just the uh, aesthetics of it, the, the, the visuals, where it's going to look like a ball and it's going to be called a strike. It's going to look like a strike and it's going to be called a ball. Then all of a sudden, you're going to have that component to be dealt with. However, uh, maybe I'm wrong with that too, because right now I thought, uh, you know, this year with the, uh, the clock and everything, there'd be more arguments when the time expires and, and uh, there'd be an argument about something like that. But that has, seems to have not been a part of it also. Cause again, we accept technology, we accept it blindly. And for me, quite frankly, I think a lot of it has to do with gambling where there's so much gambling involved in our game right now. There's a need for everything to be accurate based on winning and losing a bet. So I think that's part of it that nobody even considers enough. And I think that's, again, part of the equation. So, yes, I vote for the human being. I vote for the heartbeat. Um, I think uh, having the ability to overturn calls on the basis should be enough. Um, after that, the part about the umpires, I like the idea. And I, Ian Happ ran this by me once, um, and I liked it. Now, that little earbud should be that to remind an umpire that that pitch was a, a strike and not a ball. Or, that was a ball and not a strike so that the next time he sees that pitch, he might make an adjustment. So I would not mind technology being utilized in that in that regard to just uh, validate or verify a call. Not all of them, just the ones that on occasion. I like it from that perspective, where an umpire may be able to adjust his mental uh, visual strike zone. I think that would be good. But to constantly, constantly turn our life and world over to machines and, and, and technology, the more we do that, the less emotion we're going to have about what we, what we actually do. Wow, that's a great suggestion. I had not heard that before, Joe. I mean, we know the umpires get files after a game that grade out every pitch according to the laser-guided system. Um, so why not actually do that in real time? Mm -hmm. Like You get a wrong answer on the test, you, you get it right then and there, and you say, okay, I I'm giving that pitch away a little bit too much. I have to bring that strike zone in a little bit. Correct. I'd never heard that before, so uh, good on Ian Happ to, yeah. to come up with mm -hmm. something at least uh, is worth a discussion. Yeah, Ian's pretty sharp. Uh, we used to have really good talks when I was there with the Cubs, and uh, I can't remember where I saw him when that became part of it. Uh, but I've actually been in, in uh, umpire's rooms talking about this. Uh, Billy Miller took me into his, uh, to the umpire room in um, Cincinnati a couple years ago. We talked about this specifically, about the potential for the automated strike zone, and he pointed out different things to me that I had not thought about to that point. So, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting topic. I just don't like the idea that we constantly hand over our humanity to machines. I just don't like that. Now, there's times, yeah, listen, when it comes to medicine, uh, you know, national defense, things like that, yeah, uh, I'm in. I'm in where uh, there's going to be certain things that we miss, that we can't miss, or certain things that may expedite the healing process or, or new inventions or thoughts. Absolutely. Uh, I'm all about it. Uh, bring it on. But we've been writing term papers with it now that lack emotion so that after the term paper is written, we've got to sit there and, and, and inject emotion into what we have written in order to hand it in. All this stuff is concerning, man. And I and I read about it and I know that there's a concern among a lot of uh, uh, academics uh, everywhere. But I'm just talking about our game right now. Be careful. We just can't continually subtract the human element and expect it to be as entertaining and as fun because as that goes, the fun goes away too. We're constantly chiseling away at the fun element of our game also. And that bothers me. Yeah, that's well said. And I, and I think uh, that we're talking about faith and technology and sometimes just blind faith. Yep. We always assume that if it's new, if it's, if it's high tech, it's better uh, without stopping to think about the human element. And I think it's, it's also related. It's a generational thing. You know that Joe, those, yep, those who course. grew up with a lot of technology aren't really questioning the human cost of it because this is what they know and this is what they trust. It's dangerous Correct. Uh, and technology is great. Don't get me wrong, but it's dangerous to, to accept it on blind faith that it's always going to be pushing in a positive direction because again, there is a cost. I, I'm with you, man. And that's, that's my concern. I, 
I had the T-shirt a couple years ago. Don't forget the heartbeat, and I that was uh, post um, that was that was my ode to the uh, 2016 World Series, where you know we have that little rain delay. Jason Hayward has the uh, discussion in the clubhouse, and all of a sudden we come out like a bunch of wild men and go off and and we we win that game. All human. That was all heart. That was all real. That's how it's supposed to be. And a lot of times with all the the latest in technology, then we're always relying on success based on that uh, or not. I mean, in other words, um, yes, with the analytics and technology in our game, all good stuff. But at the end of the day, it's good players playing good baseball that win baseball games. So when teams get in some bad situations, you could just go throughout the league right now. They'll have great analytical departments, every one of them. They all do. They have a lot of smart guys upstairs. They're really good. They're throwing the right information downstairs. But after all, the teams, the, the players on the other team are better than your guys by a lot. So I don't care what kind of information you give them. They're just playing a better brand of baseball. Maybe they're more athletic. Maybe their scouting and development techniques were better than yours. But we're just focusing on information as being the end all and the reason why a group is successful or not. It should be there to augment, not to be the the end all and 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 the main driver in regards to whether we're successful or not. Joe, this has been a fascinating edition of the Book of Joe podcast. So um, if you got something to take us out to end it on, I, I'd sure love to hear what you got today. Yeah, well, even uh, you know we talked about when we when, when we wrote our book and uh, we're trying to go through different titles, and you eventually came up with the Book of Joe. One of the suggestions I made is something we just talked about. Don't forget the heartbeat. And that's, again, that's a huge concern that I have. So let's just go with the uh, 2016 um, post World Series event. Had the umbrella on the t shirt, little rain coming down, uh, nine hyphen eight. That was actually, or when eight hyphen seven, that was the actual score. So, uh, and on the back, I am blazing. Don't forget the heartbeat because the Cubs won that World Series because of the heartbeat of so many really uh, good athletes that were together as a group. And that's what was, that's what Jason reminded them about in that room um, in, in Cleveland during that, that rain delay was that this is our time. I think that's the line to use. This is our time. We deserve this. We've, we've worked hard. We've earned this and it's, it's our time to go out there and, and take it. So please never forget the heartbeat. I love that. And by the way, I will never forget after that rain delay is a the Cleveland team went back on the field your buddy at first base, the umpire, was Joe West. That's right. And I remember talking to Joe, game tied, game seven, World Series, coming back after that rain delay. And he said, man, it doesn't get any better than this. Yeah. And uh, I just thought it was so cool that, um, you know, any of us who are in that little kind of a snow globe of a moment, if you were inside that ballpark and you were waiting on how it would end, it was kind of this pregnant pause. It was kind of a, just a beautiful moment to in your case with the cubs to recalibrate right yeah um but to say and sit back it really doesn't happen where you have the time to sit back and say my goodness look where we are here i mean how special is this don't know how it's going to end but for this one moment man it is just a beautiful thing right on i mean i went upstairs to look at the weather map on my ipad i'm standing up there with chad hoyer we're trying to (laughs) Uh, make sure that we we remain positive through this whole thing and optimistic because it's hard to do that, man. Uh, sometimes you got to fake it. Um, but yeah, I, all of that, as you're saying that with great line by Joe, he's absolutely right. Um, it was is one of the best moments in, I, I guess, baseball history and to have been part of it as you were pretty special. Yeah. And by the way, I have to find one of those t-shirts. I love the sound of that. Don't forget the heartbeat. Yeah, right. I'll find it. Uh, I, I, I'm sure I have one laying around all right, brother. Next time we play golf, next time we should be the first time. I'll get, I'll get it to you. <laughs> Sounds good by me. Thanks, Joe. All right, brother. Take care, buddy. Thanks. The Book of Joe podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. 
Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at First, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts carol g juan gabriel christina aguilera what do these three have in common you mean apart from impeccable style, chart-topping canciones, and drama? Facts, yes, all of the above are correct. But most importantly, they're some of the biggest Latin icons in the world. And they're just a few of the game-changing Latin stars we're covering in Becoming an Icon Season 2. Listen to Becoming an Icon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.